The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology, faster than thought possible, to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. Hey everybody, happy Tuesday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. So glad to have you with me today. We've got a busy show coming up. Yesterday was a busy day here in the state of Michigan when it comes to presidential candidates for 2020. Of course, Beto O'Rourke made a couple of stops here in Michigan yesterday, as did New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Expect a lot more candidates to be coming through, including President Trump, who should be in Grand Rapids next week. So what does this mean for Michigan? What does this mean in terms of our importance in this year's election? We always like to think that Michigan is going to be a swing state or a place that's going to be important in the upcoming election. Is it more so this year, especially since Donald Trump carried the state by so few votes back in 2016? We're going to talk about that with Susan Demas of Michigan Advance. She was out with the candidates yesterday, having a chance to talk to them. She's going to join us today to talk a little bit about that. Also, I'm going to talk about the other battleground where this election is going to be fought, and that is on social media. And the Trump campaign signaling very strongly that Facebook is going to be one of their main battlegrounds. What does it say about the platform itself? Uh, Is it proof that uh, Facebook is indeed just for old people these days? We'll talk a bit about that on today's show. This is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Stay with me. I do appreciate you deciding to tune in today. As I promised at the beginning of the show, Susan Demas joining us right now. She is the editor-in-chief at Michigan Advance, michiganadvance.com, expanding capital coverage here in our state, something we desperately need. But of course, Susan cut her teeth back in Iowa, covering the caucuses as a cub reporter when she first got started in this business. So seeing presidential candidates come through the state is not anything new to her. She joins us right now to talk a little bit about the visits from Beta O'Rourke yesterday, of course, and Kirsten Gillibrand. Susan, welcome back to the program. It is always a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. Of course. And uh, wow, Michigan shaping up to be a battleground state in the 2020 election. We, we knew it would be with the with only a 10,000 vote margin or something uh, in the last time around. Of course, Democrats uh, not going to waste an opportunity to try to win back Michigan for the Democratic Party in the 2020 election. However, um, I think this is a flurry of early activity here that we haven't seen in quite a while, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I my first job in political journalism was actually out in Iowa covering the caucuses. So, you know, for me, this is kind of old hat, but um, it is, you know, something different for our state to be a big prize early on. Well, and and I have to ask, I mean, for a state like Michigan, which has tried in the past to become a more relevant state earlier on in the process of only to get smacked down by by both parties when they tried to do that a few years back, you know, does Michigan have sort of the infrastructure in place to be an early arbiter of of tastes the way that Iowa does? I mean, Iowa's got these town halls down pat. Citizens there know what their role is. They're active. Uh, Do you get a sense that Michigan is there yet? Well, you know, there was a a pretty big reception for the two Democrats that came into town yesterday, um, Beto O'Rourke and Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, And I imagine that the president, when he's in Grand Rapids next week for a rally, will get a big reception as well. So there definitely does seem to be interest, but um, I I would expect that there will be some stumbles from candidates, especially those who don't have 
a lot of campaign infrastructure because, you know, it's always bumpy at the beginning and you're not going to have a campaign set up here in Michigan. There are going to be a lot of people holding their powder dry. Um, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor, is in a great position to be king or queen maker. So there would be no reason for her to give up an endorsement early. So, you know, we'll, we'll probably have some amusing uh, mishaps to cover. Um, but it, it seems as of now, there are certainly uh, you know, plenty of citizens that are engaged. Well, you know, what was interesting to me yesterday, of course, is that uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, a Democrat, from New York was in town. Gretchen Whitmer was with her, did not get a chance to appear with uh, Beto O'Rourke yesterday, but did say that she spoke to him on the phone. Of course, I know this because I read it. Um, t- talk a little bit about at this point in time, or does it signal anything? Well, Kirsten Gillibrand was the first to accept the governor's Twitter invitation to come in, so she coordinated Um, So I probably wouldn't read too much into it, although, you know, it's a fair thing to point out that Kirsten Gillibrand did endorse Gretchen Whitmer um, for governor in the primary um, was was a pretty big endorsement for her. And she did campaign. So, you know, I'm sure that, you know, that's something that the governor has not forgotten. At the same time, Beto just got into this on Thursday, just announced this Midwest swing. The governor had about a dozen uh, events already on her books yesterday. She was doing a town hall and, you know, doing March's reading month and trying to sell her gas tax. So um, she did seem fairly jam-packed. But, you know, definitely there were more um, big names who showed up for Gillibrand than for O'Rourke. You know, you had Michigan Democratic Party Chair LaVora Barnes, former gubernatorial candidate Abdul Al-Sayed, Dana Nessel, the attorney general, and Whitmer. They were all around the New York senator. Um, O'Rourke got some love. You know, there were um, some state representatives, senators, um, and um, a University of Michigan regent. Um, But for the most part, it seemed like the big names were gravitating towards Gillibrand. My guest once again is Susan Demas, of course, editor-in-chief at the Michigan Advance. She, of course, uh, covered Beto O'Rourke yesterday when he was here and uh, is following, of course, the early, early campaign pretty closely at this point in time. I have a feeling that's going to continue uh, throughout this year and 2020 as Michigan seems to be poised to be a real battleground this time around. Uh, you know, Beto O'Rourke, of course, there's going to be a little bit of pushback against him. A number of uh, people on the more progressive side of the Democratic Party are already questioning whether or not he is indeed progressive enough uh, just because he placed well in Texas doesn't necessarily mean he's going to play well with the left side of the party at this point in time. He staked out some familiar Democratic territory yesterday, uh, talking to some on the decline in union jobs, paralleling, frankly, in the wealth inequality in the country. Do you get a sense that this is where he's going to be and he's going to try to sort of court that that Macomb County Democrat that um, used to exist but doesn't really exist as much anymore? I think he definitely was making a play for um, blue-collar workers, the white working class, but also, you know, um, you know, the working class is, is diverse. So, you know, I, I got no sense that he was just focused on 
um, what we traditionally think of, which let's be honest, are white workers. Um, he went to the um, Carpenters Training Hall in Ferndale. That's where I covered him and, um, you know, got, got the grand tour, talked with welding students. Um, you know, that's a tried and true way to win um, Michigan elections, um, you know, not, not just for president, but for governor as well. Um, but, you know, he's definitely getting some whiplash here. You know, he was the darling of the left in 2018 when he was running for Senate against Ted Cruz, who, um, you know, is is probably only second to Donald Trump um, in inspiring hatred from the left. Um, but, you know, as soon as he got into the presidential race and threatened um, Bernie Sanders, who is, you know, uh, the the left's primary um, candidate right now, although, you know, there are certainly many progressive candidates, um, you know, probably on policy, Elizabeth Warren may be for, further left than Sanders. She just hasn't gotten the attention. Um, but I, I think that it's it's mainly coming from Sanders supporters right now. And the fact that Beto raised $6.1 million more than, than Bernie did in his first day did not go over very well. So, you know, he's going to have to contend with that. But, you know, the money came from somewhere. And, uh, you know, perhaps he is eating into Bernie Sanders' base, which would be bad news for him. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, I, looking at any of these, I mean, there's so many candidates in the race at this point in time. Uh, we've had, what, I believe four four or five candidates have already been through Michigan at some point. Uh, there are likely more to get into the race. Uh, you know, Joe Biden hinted very strongly that he's going to run a couple of days ago. I don't know if that was a slip of the tongue or, or intentional. <laughs> um, it, it, do you get a sense that the Democratic voters here are are – engaged at this point in time in terms of, of trying to figure out who it is they support, or is this going to be something where people are going to have to do, you know, wear out the shoe leather on the bottom of their feet uh, to, to get people to come around? I think people are going to have to earn every vote. Um, you know, right now it, it looks like Joe Biden would be extremely strong in the polls. Um, you know, he was vice president for eight years and has a lot of goodwill, especially in Michigan, um, if the polls are any indication. But, you know, I, I don't think it's, you know, a situation where um, it's a coronation for anybody, um, including Bernie Sanders, who won Michigan in 2016. Um so uh, I, I think right now, Democrats, the, the you know, um, the activist core is definitely engaged. They've been engaged probably since about November 9th, 2016. <laughs> exactly. um, um, probably would have been more helpful to have been engaged before then. But, you know, um, that's the way it goes sometimes. Um, so, you know, you, you saw that in 2018 where Democrats did very well in Michigan and in, in many places nationally. Um, and I think it, it could be a very good process with this many candidates where, you know, you're going to get a lot of FaceTime with people. You're going to be able to push them on the issues. Um, but the flip side is that it could turn into a circus like the 2016 Republican presidential nominating contest did. And you could have, um, candidates being pushed to extremes and a lot of infighting and that, you know, may end up hurting Democrats in the end. So, you know, at this point, I don't think that you can say that either scenario is going to happen, but, um, you know, there, there are definitely some positives and some pitfalls. 
My guest, once again, Susan Demas of the Michigan Advance. Uh, we're, of course, talking about how Michigan is likely going to be in play, and it is in play for sure, in the next election cycle. The Democrats already showing up in pretty large numbers. President Trump will be here shortly as well. Uh, I, you know, I wanted to spend a little time talking about the people who are not on the ballot this time around. Of course, Gretchen Whitmer, governor of Michigan, uh, safe after her recent election. Debbie Stabenow won a couple of years ago, is not up for re-election. Both of them are going to be leaned on pretty heavily by these Democratic candidates. Uh, as, for, as for somebody like Governor Whitmer, does this attention on the state improve her standing, frankly, from a national level and, and uh, from a, a gubernatorial level? Is this the kind of thing that's going to give her some some attention to her agenda and what's happening here in Michigan? Absolutely. Um, and that's something that Rick Snyder tried to take advantage of in, in 2016 um, with there being a lot of attention on Michigan um, on both sides. But, you know, especially um, from Republicans during the primary, because he was a Republican. Um, you know, it's always a, a great chance for a governor to highlight important issues. And Gretchen Whitmer did that on MSNBC yesterday. You know, she hit on roads and drinking water and education, you know, her big issues and, and the focus of her budget. Um, at the same time, um, I'm not surprised at all that pundits are talking about her as a vice presidential candidate. Um, I interviewed her before she took office in December and I asked her about it, um, you know, long before it was a question on many people's minds, because, you know, we live in an era where anyone and everyone is considered for higher office. And um, she won more votes than anybody else in the state. Um, She has a message that, you know, seems to be resonating and is being looked at as a model for Democrats nationwide. Michigan's a key state. Um, she's a good speaker. Why Why wouldn't she be considered? Um, I, I don't honestly think it's anything that she's fanning herself that much, although who doesn't like the attention? But people are going to talk um, that that's pretty much what you do in Washington. <laughs> uh, Susan, you know, you take a look at how many people are going to be coming through here. Of course, Trump will be holding, uh, you know, some of his typical rallies uh, that he holds, and he'll be doing a number of those throughout the state. I have a feeling over the course of the next year, um, you've got a number of high profile people that are also planning to speak to the Mackinac Policy Conference this year. Stacey Abrams, of course, who is the uh, a gubernatorial candidate in Georgia who ended up losing in that close race, but is somebody who's been getting a lot of attention. She has not announced her intentions yet, but she's going to be speaking at the Mackinac Policy Conference this year, among others. I have a feeling that list is going to grow before we get there as well. Um, you know, Michigan is a weird state. Uh, do you get a sense that anybody really understands the pulse of the voter in this state at this point in time? You know, I think a lot of people felt that they understood the Michigan electorate in 2016 when Donald Trump pulled it out. And, you know, everyone thought that we were a red state and Democrats, you know, were not going to be able to um, win back voters in West Michigan or up north. And, you know, in 2018, Democrats did very well, although it should be said, um, you know, north of M10 remains very problematic for for Democrats. Their growth is in um, suburban West Michigan and, of course, southeast Michigan. Um, so, you know, you have a lot of data points to look at. And, you know, the old cliche is it all comes down to turnout. You know, 
which voters turn out and, and what are the issues that are important to them. Um, and presidential and gubernatorial elections in Michigan are often quite different. You know, we swung from uh, a 16 point victory for Obama in 2008 to a an almost 20 point victory for Republican Rick Snyder in 2010 to Obama winning by about 10 back in 2012. You know, we are a a fickle state with a lot of different interests and a a lot of people, 10 million people. That's a lot. Um, You know, um, you know, you consider that Iowa is such a a crucial state for the presidential election. And um, you have quite a few Iowas that can fit into Michigan. So um, I think right now, um, you're seeing a lot of candidates try a lot of different things. Kirsten Gillibrand is clearly going for the female suburban voter, sure. um, which was decisive for Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, Beto O'Rourke wants to win suburban Detroit voters um, who are more from the working class um, and kind of a, appeal to them and unions. Um, and we'll see, you know, who candidates like Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris or Cory Booker, who they're going after in Michigan. Um, we, we could see various groups being wooed by different candidates. It could be a really fascinating thing for us to all watch. Well, interestingly enough, you know, you, you've already seen the Trump 2020 campaign ramp up here in Michigan uh, with Steve Bannon and that build the wall initiative thing uh, that uh, happened to Kobo last just a few days ago, as a matter of fact, talking about, of course, immigration issues, things along those lines. There's going to be a rally. I, I guarantee you Trump is going to play up the same typical themes, not to mention the infrastructure that seems to be in place out there in social media uh, for uh, the president at this point in time. Get a sense as to where you think this is going to be from from his perspective and, and what this is going to look like here in Michigan for President Trump. How does he convince people that Michigan uh, is a state that he deserves to win again? Yeah, this is going to be an extremely ugly campaign. And, you know, I admit that I was naive back in 2016. And, you know, it's pretty much my job as political journalist to be you know the most cynical of anybody. But, you know, I, there was a lot that was going on that I think political journalists didn't even pick up on because, you know, there is just a well of misinformation, um, you know, not just on, on Facebook where we saw some of it, but, you know, all these YouTube videos and Reddit and 4chan and, you know, you have outlets like Infowars and, you know, they, they spread conspiracy theories and use language that you don't employ company, but it, it resonates with some people. And it's not a coincidence that Steve Bannon just showed up here to talk about the border 1,500 miles away from the southern border. Um, you know, it, it, this is a wedge issue that President Trump and his supporters want to use. And they're not afraid to use racist rhetoric when it, you know, suits their purposes, um, and, and certainly not, uh, and certainly their supporters are not. So um, whoever the Democrats pick, and it, it frankly doesn't matter um, if it's a white man like Joe Biden or if it's a person of color, um, this is going to be a campaign where race is front and center and gender will be front and center. Um, and uh it's it's going to have to be something I think that journalists are going to have to gird their loins for. 
Well, Susan, you better staff up because there's going to be a lot of candidates in a lot of different places around the state covering it all. is going to be a challenge for sure, but we know you are up to the task. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks, Craig. All right, Susan Demas, Editor-in-Chief at the Michigan Advance, joining us here on the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. And, of course, we will be checking in with her quite often throughout this campaign. Stick with us. We'll be right back. The Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Also, home to Deadline Detroit TV, which includes The Zip, a weekly wrap-up of the week's news with some humor, and The Trip, wise relationship advice with hosts Megan Slattery and Tracy Evans. Deadline Detroit, one-stop shopping for all your news. Hey, this is the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Really glad that you decided to join me today. And, you know, of course, we were just talking with uh, Susan Demas, of course, about all the candidates that are going to be making trips and appearances in Michigan, especially uh, as the state sort of shakes itself out in terms of where the polls stand and where they're going to be. I mean, we're still so far out from the election at this point in time that it's impossible to know. Uh, but Michigan very much in play. The state, of course, turned red after being blue for several elections in a row, and the Democrats would, of course, like to turn that around and re-win the state like Michigan. So that's why Beto O'Rourke made such an early stop after being in Iowa this time around. But obviously, candidates coming to your state, holding rallies, holding town hall meetings is important. But more and more, elections are being won on social media. And if you want some evidence as to how important social media is going to be in this election, first of all, just look at what happened in the last election. But regardless of whether or not people recognize what's going on in social media in terms of the way that they're being manipulated, uh, whether or not these are fake stories, real stories, new stories, it's not going to stop the candidates from going on Facebook. And you take a look at the Donald Trump campaign so far, and Axios is reporting today just how much President Trump is going to be investing in Facebook. Already, he spent $3.5 million on Facebook ads in this current cycle. For the 2020 re-election campaign, another million dollars in Google ads, a total of $4.5 million already spent. Now, just to give some comparison here, Elizabeth Warren has spent about $595,000 total on social media advertising at this point in time. If you add up all of the candidates running on the Democratic side and how much money has been put out there yet, it pales in comparison to what President Trump has spent. Now, that's not unusual. But what it does suggest to me, is that President Trump knows that there is about oh, a third of Americans who get most of their news from Facebook. And the interesting thing about that is, is that we know how much of the news that gets spread on Facebook is not necessarily accurate, is not necessarily true. We know how much people will share things even if they don't read them. And that means that we could have a campaign built on disinformation, not just from the Republicans. Democrats are guilty of this kind of stuff too. But when you take a look and how much money is going to be spent, and what we're going to see on Facebook, it's important for all of us to realize how we are going to be manipulated in this campaign cycle. And of course, this is all going to feed the base on both sides. Now, the advantage that Donald Trump has at this situation is that he is the likely nominee for president. It's, it's very unlikely that he's going to be unseated as the nominee unless something happens to his presidency. So right now, all of the energy, all of the money can go towards promoting one candidate on that side. That is the advantage of being an incumbent. It's a huge deal. Right now, Democrats are trying to get the word out for each of the individual candidates that are out there. Some have more money, some have less. But we're going to see that sort of 
duking it out going on for the first several months, which gives the campaign, the Trump campaign, an opportunity to focus on spending the money it's already got. While Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, anybody else you can think of that's running on the Democratic side have to raise money. That's what they're doing. They're not campaigning yet. They're, their ads are targeted to raise more money so they can do future ad buys while the Trump campaign gets to spend the money that it's already got in-house. So it's not a bad situation if you are the incumbent. So it's a nine-to-one spending advantage right now for Trump over Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, who are the top two on the Democratic side. It's early for this, and it's huge. But look for Trump to do rallies. Look for Trump to do a lot of buys. Look for his bots to be out in number. And this means that we're going to be seeing campaign by Facebook, more so than we saw even last time. Now, Facebook ad spending, all the candidates know. Facebook is an older platform. Reaching younger voters is something that both parties always suggest they want to do. But they also know who's going to show up at the polls. And Facebook is a big deal. They're still on Facebook. Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, all owned by Facebook. So there's going to be a lot of money going towards Mark Zuckerberg and his companies. Now, what does that mean for Mark Zuckerberg? What does that mean for Facebook? What does that mean for their responsibility to make sure that they are indeed somehow filtering a lot of this kind of stuff? Well, one of the things that Facebook said the other day, and this is really frustrating, is that they blame the lack of local news coverage on the amount of misinformation that's being spread and the amount of people that are ill-informed about politics and policies in their regions. However, Facebook has siphoned off a lot of the advertising revenue that used to go to journalistic operations, newspapers, radio stations that cover this kind of stuff. So it's interesting for them to basically pull off all the revenue and then suggest somehow that the newspapers are to blame for the lack of quality coverage and news outlets in general still have rules about what gets printed, what doesn't, sourcing, ethics. Facebook has none of that. It has none of that. There are no safety valves. There are no guarantees. There is nothing about Facebook that is going to sort of block what is going to be a bunch of misinformation that will be part of this campaign. Some of it will be actual money coming from candidates themselves. A lot of it's going to be dark money coming from all sorts of interest groups that have a stake in this election. So what you need to figure out, and this is something that's very, very important because I utilize Facebook. I need to utilize Facebook. It's how I reach my audience. It's how I market to them. It's how I let them know what's going on. And it's a way for me to increase my audience. It's all important stuff. And that's why I'm very careful about what I share on Facebook, what sources I look at when I'm looking for information. But you have to know that these political campaigns are not going to be. If they've got something they can put out there that they think is going to be embarrassing to somebody, they're going to put it out there, regardless of whether it's true. And there's going to be a lot of other people that have no ethics or scruples whatsoever that will put out whatever they think is going to be damaging to the opposition or helpful to their candidate. And the thing that we have to do as individuals is figure out the difference between the two. But I'm not confident that we're going to. So if you think about this, Here's some data that this Axios story today had. Since February, almost 28% of all traffic referrals, direct and indirect, to articles about politics, law, and government came from Facebook. Only 9% came from Google. So Facebook, 28% of all traffic referrals for political and news analytics since February. That's a huge, huge amount. And that shows you the place that they are taking in terms of where people get their news and also should give you some sort of pause as to how well that news is being screened. The other interesting thing here that they found is that Fox News is the most popular news outlet on Facebook. 
So there are a lot of partisan people that are on Facebook that are giving their spin on the news of the day, and that's what a lot of people are passing along. So we have a job to do as individuals to make sure that what we are putting out there, what we are sharing, what we are reading is accurate. We don't have a level of trust in our news outlets the way that we used to. There is no Walter Cronkite anymore. I've been saying this for a long time. And I'm not telling you that what I think is the right way to think. I am encouraging you to make up your own mind based on good sources. And based on what we've seen in recent years, in recent elections, Facebook might just not be the most trustworthy place to get our news. Everybody has an agenda on Facebook. Everybody is trying to sell you something in some capacity. It's not necessarily about impartial coverage. It's never really been about that. And as long as we've got roughly a third of the residents getting most of their news from Facebook, this is something we're going to have to deal with. And as I said the other day when talking about right-wing extremism and, and, and telling truth about bigotry and hatred to, to that crazy uncle you have, we have a responsibility as individuals to point out when people are peddling in false information. And that requires a level of discipline on our parts as voters that maybe we haven't really had to rely on before. But that level of trust in what you're reading, especially when it's on social media, that level of trust needs to be set very, very low. And your alert level on bogus stories needs to be very, very high. Don't just share something because it basically tickles your fancy or it says something that you agree with. If it's not true, it's not true. Do a little research, do a little homework, or else this is going to be an ugly election. We already know it's going to be an ugly election. But it's our responsibility as voters to make sure that we are not furthering that ugliness. Because there are going to be plenty of people that are going to try to spread it for us. So to all of my friends and all of my listeners and everybody else who cares about fair and free elections in this country, it is our responsibility to stand up to the trolls that are trying to give us misinformation. It's our responsibility to police our own traffic and what we are doing and what we are sharing and what we are saying. Reputable sources matter. There are no repercussions for these Russian bot farms that are putting out whatever the heck they want. There are no repercussions for your crazy uncle who decides that he wants to share a story that is completely false or peddles in conspiracy theories. There are no repercussions for that person. There are repercussions for our democracy, though. Keep that in mind. This is The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. Thanks so much. We'll be back tomorrow. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services.